second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 17. I'm going to be reading the ERV version. Numbers chapter 17. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. Get 12 wooden walking sticks from them. Get one from the leader of each of the 12 tribes. Write the name of each man on his walking stick. On the stick from Levi, write Aaron's name. There must be one stick for the head of each of the 12 tribes. Put these walking sticks in the meeting tent in front of the box of the agreement. This is the place where I meet with you. I will choose one man to be the true priest. You will know which man I choose because his walking stick will begin to grow new leaves. In this way, I will stop the people from always complaining against you and me. So Moses spoke to the Israelites. Each of the leaders gave him a walking stick. There were 12 walking sticks. There was one stick from each leader of each tribe. One of the walking sticks belonged to Aaron. Moses put the walking sticks before the Lord in the tent of the agreement. The next day, Moses entered the tent. He saw that Moses' walking stick, the stick from the family of Levi, was the one that had grown new leaves. That walking stick had even grown branches and made almonds. So Moses brought all the sticks from the Lord's place. He showed the walking sticks to the Israelites. They all looked at the sticks, and each man took his own stick back. Then the Lord said to Moses, Put Aaron's walking stick back in front of the box that holds the agreement. This will be a warning for those people who are always turning against me. This will stop their complaining against me so that I will not destroy them. So Moses did what the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, We know that we will die. We are lost. We will all be destroyed. Anyone who even comes near the Lord's holy place will die. Is it true that we all will die? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Jesus, you promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, that you would be present with us. And so we know that you're here this morning. And we know that we are here because you've called us to be here. We thank you for getting us up and getting us out this morning. Lord, we have come from many different kinds of circumstances this week. Some of us had a week of celebration and some of us had a week of strife. Some of us had a week of contentment and some of us had a week of hunger. 
Some of us had a week of peace and some of us had a week of war. Lord, we know that you are the God of all of our circumstances. And so we come out from those weeks. We set aside this time in this sanctuary. We remove ourselves for the moment from this busy world. Lord, we pray that the clamor of our lives and the clamor of our world would, would go silent for this hour. We pray that we would hush our hearts so that we might hear your voice. And we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would meet us in the conditions that we find ourselves in. Lord, we pray for those of our number who are not able to be here this morning. We pray for Jordan Goretti. We pray that you would be with him while he is in the hospital. We pray that you would encourage his spirit and quickly return him to us and to his family. We pray for Gail Marin, and we pray that you would make her body strong. We pray that you would encourage her spirit, even as she is separated from us this morning. Lord, for others who are not able to be here because of strength or because of distance, we pray that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be real. Lord Jesus, you call us to yourself because you are the good shepherd. Not only do you call us to yourself, you go out and you, you round us up and you find us. Some of us have been wandering and straying, and you find us. Lord, we pray this morning as we gather together as your people, that we would be bound one to another in Christian love, even as we are bound to you. Lord, forgive us for the hardness of our hearts. Forgive us for uh, the complaints that we hold against one another. Lord, we pray that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that we might come in a manner worthy. Enable us, Lord, to forgive those who have a grievance against us. Lord, let us be your people. We have no hope outside of you and outside of the good news of the gospel. May your gospel come to life for us this day. Lord, may we be strengthened by your life-giving words. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to turn? These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this sermon is going to be about holiness. Usually when we hear the word holy... We think of some kind of extreme moral excellence. A holy person is much better than the ordinary good person. And if good is the opposite of bad, then we might think of the top of the moral scale as being holy, below which would be you know, the ordinary good. Of course, down rock bottom at the moral scale, down in the pit of hell, we would have evil. And above evil, not quite so terrible as evil, we would have the ordinary bad. And I guess floating someplace in the middle, the zero point of 
our number line of morality, we would have what is morally neutral. There are some things that are neither good nor bad, neither holy nor evil. They are morally neutral. The common view of holiness is that it is an extreme version of goodness, an extreme version of moral excellence. But you know what? While holy might be better than good, people generally don't like it. Calling someone a holy roller is not a compliment. Being holier than thou is not a way to make friends and influence people. When we set personal goals or when we make New Year's resolutions, we rarely say, you know, I want to be holy. It's almost as if holiness were too much, as if it's over the top, as if it's too extreme. Think about it for a second. We may have a positive opinion of someone who is religious, but if you call someone a religious extremist, you're not saying that they're better than good, you're actually saying that they're worse than bad. And so in some weird, twisted way in our minds, holiness and evil are associated and we hate them both. Same goes for the word zealot. Don't preach for one week and you lose your pipes. <laughs> the same goes for the word zealot. A zealot has zeal and zeal is a good thing. But if you call someone a zealot, you're saying that there's some kind of religious nut. Zealots are like the vegans of the church world. We're uncomfortable with religious zeal. We're squeamish around holiness. That in spite of the fact that Proverbs 23, 17 says, always be zealous. And at least five times, probably more, but I spotted five times in the book of Leviticus, God says directly to the Israelites, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. That's surprising. It's only something that a relational God would say. What we find in the Bible is that God has defined himself in relationship to a peculiar people, to a particular people. I am their God, and those people are defined by their relationship to God. He is our God. Be holy because I'm holy. My holiness is a reflection of the holiness of my God. It, it's a piece of my relationship with God. Now God in the Bible presents two methods of holiness. One is the law and the other is the gospel. I want to talk about the law first because the gospel doesn't make any sense if you don't have the law. The law is our preparation for the gospel. You cannot read the New Testament if you haven't read the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that the law is a lamp for our feet. It's a light for our paths. We read that in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And the entire psalm is a song of praise to the law of God, to all of the wonders of that law. The law reveals the narrow path that leads to life. You remember what Jesus says about the narrow way and the, and the broad way. Okay, the Broadway leads to death. 
Narrow way leads to life. Only a few are going to find it. How do we find it? We find it in the law. It reveals the character of God, this law. We live godly lives if we keep the law. When we obey God's law, we act like God. We behave like God. Not in his power or in his transcendence, but in what the theologians call his communicable attributes. Okay? There are certain things that are true about God that can also be true about us. Okay? Now, God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. Those are incommunicable attributes. We're not going to be like God in that way. But God is also loving. God is kind. And uh, God is good. And so we, those are communicable attributes. And we can share those things with God. And when we follow God's law, we, be, we are godly. When we follow God's law, our path is holy, just as God is holy. The last time we were together a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how God's law is the covenant or the agreement. In our translation, it keeps being called the agreement. The box of the agreement is the Ark of the Covenant. How God's law is the covenant or the agreement that defines or establishes the relationship between God and God's people. It is the law of God that makes us the people of God. It's not like we're the people of God first and then we acquire a law. It's the law that makes us the people of God. It is the law of God which specifies certain things that we are to do and certain things that we are to avoid doing. The, when, and when we do those things and we avoid doing those things, it's because those things have been revealed to us as being the will of God. We do certain things and we avoid certain things as a way of working out our relationship with God. It's actually the same with your spouse. There are certain things that you do with your spouse and you don't do them with anyone else. And there are certain things that you don't do with anyone else that you do with your spouse. Those do's and don'ts are the boundary markers of the relationship and they're defined in the marriage covenant. At some level, we do those things and we don't do the other things for the simple reason that God has told us that's what he wants us to do. Okay? What, you know, why, do we, why do we obey God's law? Well, because it's God's law. There's always a danger when you find people trying to find some alternative reason for why should I do this thing. God has clearly commanded this thing, and some people think that they are the judge who's above God. I'm going to evaluate God's law and determine which, which of God's laws are good laws and which ones are not good laws because I really am God. Okay, you've met this line of thinking among people who call themselves Christians. We follow God's law just because it's God's law. For the simple reason that God has said it and that he wants us to do it. Now that might seem arbitrary to some people. And if anyone has the right to be arbitrary, well it has to be the creator of the universe. I mean God arbitrarily decided that, you know, giraffes were going to have long necks. He gets to do that. That's the privilege of being the creator. But I am convinced that these things in God's law are not merely arbitrary. That there are in fact deeper and more interconnected reasons that we may not be aware of. But let's 
this morning, just for the sake of the argument, pretend that every jot and tittle of God's law is arbitrary. That there's no other reason for that except that that's just what he wants. Well, is that any different than things with your spouse? Gentlemen, let me talk to you because I know you'll know what I'm talking about. Women, don't listen to this. Are there not things that you do or things that you don't do simply because your wife wants them that way? And would you not, if you were single, do with great joy the very thing that your wife hates so much? You don't have to say anything. I don't want to get you in trouble. I, for one, happen to think that making a bed is a waste of time. When I get into bed at night, I just mess it up anyway. I don't like a tucked-in bed. And what do I care if my bed is a mess? It's not like I live in my bedroom and have to see all the rumpled sheets, and I certainly don't entertain guests in my bedroom, so no one else is going to see the mess anyway. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is... My wife likes it when the bed is made. And so every once in a while, I will make the bed. And I do it just to make her happy. And because I love my wife, that's a good enough reason to make the bed. How about we start treating God that way too? How about we follow his law just because we love him? stop asking for a reason. When we keep God's law, even the laws that we can't quite wrap our minds around, when we keep God's law, it makes him happy. He loves it when we do that. And if we love God, that's what we'll do. And if you don't believe me, then please believe Jesus, because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. People who keep God's commandments are the people who love God. Now let me be real with you for a minute. I don't want a show of hands, but I, I know that some of you who love Jesus haven't been keeping his commandments. The commandments of Jesus are actually harder to keep than the commandments of Moses. There is a common misconception that the Old Testament law is hard and merciless and that the New Testament is all, you know, easy and gracious. And the only person who believes that is someone who has not read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. We get the first clue in Matthew 5.20 where Jesus fires his opening shot I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I thought that Jesus was going to make this easy for us. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they're the experts. 
These are like the full-time clergy guys who were working really hard on it. And Jesus says, you know what? Eh, you have to actually be better than that if you're going to make heaven. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus starts going through the law. You remember this, I hope. If not, go back and read it. He starts going over some of the highlights of the law. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. And Jesus says, well, if you're angry with your brother and if you call him a fool, you too are a murderer. Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And says, well, you know, if you look on someone else with lust, you are an adulterer. Verse 32, he says that anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 37, he says that anytime you make an affirmation, whenever you like say something is the case, you should not strengthen that affirmation with oath-like words. You should never say anything stronger than a plain yes and no. Verse 39, he says that we should not resist evil people. Hmm. Verse 48, he says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone who would claim to be a red-letter Christian would have to be legalistic and weighed down with a burden they could not possibly bear. I find that most people who love and quote the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is the part of the Bible most often quoted by non-believers. I find that people who love and quote the Sermon on the Mount quote it often as a weapon against other people. The Sermon on the Mount, with its command to turn the other cheek and to judge not lest you be judged, is a wonderful club to beat up your enemies. But if we are to read the Bible the way that we are meant to read the Bible, if we are let to, to allow the Bible to examine our lives, rather than the lives of our neighbors, we're not going to be called to give an account for the life of our neighbor. If we let the Bible examine our lives, we will find that we have failed more miserably than we ever knew. The Sermon on the Mount will condemn you more deeply and thoroughly than Moses' laws about ritual cleanness or kosher foods. The Bible declares, of course, that none are righteous, no, not one. And if the law of Moses doesn't convince you of that, the Sermon on the Mount surely will. And that's why we have to have the gospel. Without the gospel, we are sunk. And the law prepares us for the gospel because the law reveals to us what our problem is with God. The law reveals to us the character of God and it reveals to us our personal character. When we read the Bible the way that we're supposed to read the Bible, it becomes a mirror in which we see our own lives reflected and we find ourselves coming up short. The Bible reveals the character of God, and it reveals the character of man, and it reveals this enormous gulf between the two. And if we're going to be in the presence of holy God, we need to be holy as well. The command to be holy is a command to be prepared to be in the presence of God. We have to have the gospel. 
Without the gospel, we're sunk. The law prepares us for the gospel. And while God's grace is sprinkled throughout the law, the Old Testament is full of God's grace and God's mercy. He is so merciful. He is so long-suffering. He again and again rescues his people. But we only get the full revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. You know that Jesus lived a perfect life. You know that his perfect life fulfilled the demands of the law. He is the one person who actually managed to live the law completely. He, he didn't mess up at all. And then Jesus dies a death which atones for the sins of other people. Okay, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. Jesus died for our sins. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive payment for our sins. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we also receive Christ's perfect record. All right? There is this double exchange that happens when we are united to Christ. When we are united to Christ in faith, I mean, what happens when we're born again is that we believe in Jesus and we believe that his atoning work applies to our lives. And there's a union that happens between us and Christ. Okay? Before that, we're separated. Okay? The goal, the goal of, of the Christian religion is to help people become united to Christ. And when we become united to Christ, two things happen. Uh, and Well, they're actually related. What belongs to Christ then belongs to us. So the perfect record of Christ becomes our perfect record. One day we're going to stand before a judge and he's going to evaluate our lives. What's he going to see? Well, I'm going to have on the robes of Jesus. He's not going to see my record. Thank God. Okay. He's going to see the record of Christ. And also Christ died an atoning death. And so Christ's death washes away all of my sins. Okay? So... The washing away of the sins gets rid of all of the negatives. It gets rid of all those demerits. But the perfect life of Christ gives us all of the positive, all of the merits. It isn't that, that we're just simply morally neutral. When we are united to Christ, we're beautiful. We're perfect. We have lived a rich and fruitful life uh, in Christ. And this is, the, this is the inheritance that we get by union with Christ. When our sins are atoned for, and when the perfect righteousness of Christ becomes the borrowed robes that we wear, we will stand before the judgment seat without fear. Okay? That's why for us as Christians there is no fear. There's, because there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. You'll run into people who are very sensitive to criticism. Who are very defensive when something is pointed out, some failure that, they, that they've made. And they're sensitive to criticism because, because they feel like they're being condemned. No one wants to be condemned. But when we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Now, like we say this again and again here at this church. We believe that those of us who are born again continue to sin, all right? But our sins are dealt with by Christ at the cross, all right? So when, when we stand before the ultimate judge, 
we, we stand in a condemnation-free zone. And here's the deal. If I can stand before the maker of heaven and earth without any fear, without any worry, knowing that I'm accepted as a beloved son, well, I can certainly stand in front of you too. I am less impressed by you than I am by God Almighty. Okay? Okay? And you know what? God Almighty loves me. And he's going to welcome me home one day. Whatever you think about me. The fear of the Lord is a recognition of the holiness of God. When we started this sermon, I was talking about how we have this gut reaction against holiness. We don't like it. You know, it seems a bit too much. It seems extreme. I believe that is because holiness, like a blinding light, like a powerful bleach, that holiness can feel like an attack to those who are covered in filth and sin, like cockroaches, you know, we, we run away from the light. Like a stained garment, we feel the burn of the caustic cleaner. And so we want to avoid holiness, and we want to avoid people who are holy. If you want to know where uh, the hostility toward the Christian witness and the Christian scripture and the Christian churches, it, it, part of it is that we represent the holiness of God. I'm not saying that we're holy people. In fact, we're a bunch of scumbags in this church. But the reality is we hold up the standard of God's holiness and, and people, don't, people don't want to hear it. Okay? Because they feel judged and condemned by that as long as they're outside of Christ. Our invitation, of course, is be united to Christ, be united to Christ, be united to Christ. And you too will wear his robes of righteousness. Holiness, like a blinding light, reveals our sin. Now, both of our readings this morning, and I'm sorry to wait so long to get back to the text that we've been supposed to be uh, talking about this morning, uh, but both of our readings this morning are about terrifying encounters with the holiness of God. And by the way, in our Sunday school class, we, adult Sunday school class, uh, we had another scripture passage which picked up on the same thing. Some of you people are not uh, going to adult Sunday school class and you're, you're, you're missing out, but, but we were talking about another passage where there was the same encounter with the holiness uh, of God. In the Numbers passage, you remember what's going on here in Numbers. Uh, you know, they're, they're stuck out there in the wilderness. This is already after that they've, they've been condemned to have to wander for 40 years because, you know, they didn't have the faith to trust God to go into the land. And they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're going to try to overthrow Aaron and Moses. Aaron and Moses, of course, have been appointed by God to their jobs. They did not look for this job. God gave them this job. And uh, so God has this demonstration with these, with these walking sticks, you know, 12 walking sticks, and one of them's going to bloom, and that's going to be our guy. I wish we could have presidential elections this way, okay? <laughs> Just show us, Lord, who, who you want to lead this country, all right? But, but the point is that it's the God's the one who's choosing, okay? The kingdom of God is not a democracy. God, God's the boss. And the reaction of these people after this demonstration, 
at the end of our reading there in Numbers chapter 17 is, we know that we're going to die. We are lost. They're terrified. They've been fooling around with the power of God. They've been challenging the power of God. And God demonstrates His power and His holiness in this moment. And they're panicked. Well, that's good, actually. A little bit of fear. There are a lot of reasons to avoid hell. One of them might just be fear. You just might... Fear can keep you out of some trouble. Okay, some people prefer to be attracted by love. Some of us need to be afraid of things that, are, that could be really bad. Okay, God works in a couple different ways there. They are terrified because they realize they've been messing with the holy God. And then we have this situation of Peter there uh, uh, out fishing. You know, he, Jesus has been in, in Peter's boat. And the sermon's over, and the people have been sent away, and, uh, you know, Jesus tells Peter to go out into the deep water, and we're going to do a little bit of fishing, but Peter's like, he's been up all night, I guess night is the time you fish, and they've not, they've not turned up anything, and Peter obeys him, and the net goes down into the water, and it comes up supernaturally. And Peter has this insight, you know, that, that this man that I'm dealing with, is something other. Okay, look, I knew that he was a righteous teacher of the law. I knew that he was a wise rabbi. But something really spooky is going on here that this man has a command over, over nature as well. All right? People who admire Jesus, people who think that Jesus is a prophet, people who think that Jesus is a moral example for how to live your life are missing the point. Jesus is God. Okay? He made the universe, which is why when Jesus comes into the world, he has a command over the universe. And Peter gets a little glimpse into this. Okay, this is early in Peter's development as a disciple. Okay, he's just a baby disciple at this point. But he gets this glimpse, and what's his reaction? You got to get away from me. Stay away from me. I'm a sinful man. There is this recognition, somehow it must be burned into our DNA, that our sinfulness in the presence of holy God is just death for us. And Peter's reaction to the holiness of Jesus that's revealed to him is stay away from me because I don't want to die. Now I want to point out to you what Jesus' reaction is to Peter in this circumstance. Jesus says, don't be afraid. One of the things that separates born-again believers from people who are not yet born again is how they react to God when they sin big. When we're born again and we sin, we'll run to God for cleaning and for forgiveness. When we're outside of God and we sin big, we run away from God because we're scared to death. 
We do it by denial. We do it by covering up. We do it by just being away from any place that the, the name of the Lord might be proclaimed. I've known people, I got, I got someone in my life who's scared to death of the red doors of this building. She won't come in here. Okay? At some deep level in her life, she knows how far outside of the will of God she is. I think Jesus' answer to that woman in my life as, is the same as Jesus' answer to Peter. Don't be afraid. Even though our lives are filled with sin, we are called to approach the holiness of God. And we do this because we've been invited. Okay, Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we could come into the presence of God. One of the things that happened on Good Friday is that the, is, is that the veil in the temple was torn. Okay? This is what separated the most holy part of the temple from, I don't know, the profane world outside of it. And when Jesus died, that, temp, that, that veil was torn, giving us direct access to Christ, uh, through Christ to the Holy of Holies. We are invited to come into the presence of God's holiness through Christ. We have to place our faith in Christ. We have to stop placing our faith in ourselves. Too many people are assuming that, you know, my goodness is what's going to make me okay with God. Boy, that's just foolishness. The light of Christ will not destroy us. It will put to death our old nature. Sometimes we don't want to do that. Sometimes we want to hold on to that old nature. The light of Christ will put to death our old nature. But as that old nature begins to die, the new, the new nature has a chance to flourish. And we begin to have real life and we begin to have eternal life. You know that eternal life begins in this life, right? We don't only get eternal life after we die, all right? We get eternal life because we've been born into it here so that when we die, we just step into the presence of Almighty God. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't, you probably should. But there's a character in that book, a, a snotty, greedy boy named Eustace. And uh, at some point in the story, he gets turned into a dragon by his greed. And he's got a bracelet around his arm. I think I'm remembering this right. And as he grows in his dragonness, the bracelet, of course, doesn't expand, and he's in this terrible pain. And the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, who is Aslan the lion, rescues the boy from his own condition by driving his claws into the leathery hide of the dragon exterior and ripping it away. All right? This is what happens to our old man in the light of Christ. It does get ripped away, but what is revealed is what's fresh and baby-like on the inside, okay, what we were intended to be. All of us have heard the gospel at least once in our life. The call is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a common human condition. When we're born into this world, we're, we're just born out of step with God. I, you know, I could explain it to you, but we'll talk about the Garden of Eden and all this stuff. 
We're born out of step with God. We are born naturally selfish. We're born naturally inclined to things that are not good in the sight of God. However, the gift of God is eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. We're born into this condition, but we can be reborn. By faith in Christ, we receive a new life, and that new life begins to grow up, to grow up in us. My hope is that some of you have had an encounter with the holiness of God. Maybe not all of you. It'll scare the bejabbers out of you. And I hope you run into it every once in a while. It's good. It keep, it, it, it'll, it'll focus you. Okay? I want you to run into the holiness of God. And I want you to encounter his holiness here in this sacrament that we're going to enjoy now. This Lord's Supper is a sacrament for those who have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior and, be, and been baptized, you're welcome to share uh, in this sacrament today. This is not a, for Presbyterians only. It's for, it's for anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we pray that your word would uh, settle into our hearts and uh, show us who we are and what we need from you. We pray this in Jesus' name.